Welcome to Cursed Objects, a podcast about history, politics, and the social worlds of objects. It's kind of like a cursed show and tell where we explore the worst examples of what history can offer. I think that's kind of a decent That's what what we do. (laughs) That's what we do. Great. Um, I'm Dr. Cassidy, a historian, broadcaster, and someone whose dad fairly recently said, Kasha, I love you but you're a socialist. (laughs) And I think in this episode, we're going to explore a little bit why that might have been a bit of a pejorative coming from him. The word but was in that sense. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My name's Dan Hancocks. I'm a journalist, author, and Soviet bunker sceptic. As we find out later in the episode, I was based on first-hand experience. Right, can't wait. Sort of. Um, Yeah, welcome to Cursed Objects. If you aren't aware of our Patreon and you're enjoying the podcast, uh, now is probably a good point to tell you that uh, we have created, to our very great excitement and soon to be your great excitement too, uh, our very own Cursed Objects, Blessed Objects, in the... (laughs) It's a very roundabout way of saying, we've got some merch, guys. We've made some merch. Um, I say we, Kasha did all the admin, and Archie Bashford, our genius designer who designed that gorgeous horrifying, dripping uh, sort of beans clock logo of ours. Um, he did all the creative work. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got some, we've made some amazing stickers, which are perfectly sized to put on the back of your phone, as someone mm-hmm. was doing in the pub just before Christmas. Um, they, they, each one is sort of based on a particular episode, mm-hmm. takes the cursed object from that episode, and then Archie has sort of rendered it in just he's somehow made them even more horrifying using his incredible artistic skills. So check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash cursed objects. For that, you don't you don't only get stickers, you get bonus episodes on quite a regular basis. Uh yeah, check it out. Four quid a month. It's really worth it. It's a good deal. It is a good deal. <laughs> and it means that we can continue making these podcasts for you. Exactly. We you know, this this stuff doesn't come easy. Um <laughs> Well, we do research, don't we? Not to sort of slay all of our rivals here, but some people just show up, having done no reading, have a chin wag. It's like, oh, we're so funny in the pub. We could probably just do a podcast, couldn't we? True of me and Kasha, but also we do actually do a bit of reading and note-taking too. Anyway, Kasha. Jay's sure don't come for free. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it does if you do what everyone does and use other people's Shh, logins. Oh, right, sorry. Oh. Yeah, you're not supposed to say that publicly. RIPZ Library, which is the best way of getting books ever and has now gone down. Very, very tragic for the academic community. Um, right, so, um, Dan, it was Christmas recently and my brother bought my mum probably one of the most cursed things I've ever seen mm-hmm. so um it's board game and you know we've been thinking a lot about games uh, check out our patreon episode on monopoly 
and the way we gamify life or life has been gamified for us. But it was a board game called Koleka, right? That word won't mean much to you because it's a Polish word and it means Q. <laughs> and what, it, what spelling of Q? Like Q-U-E-U-E. <laughs> Making me test my yeah, spelling yeah. brain there, It's quite hard to spell yeah. out loud, isn't it? But yeah, not a sneaky cue, but um, the kind of thing that snakes around, you know, exactly. away from the Queen's coffin, for example. Yes, yes. So let me read the description for you to really understand why a game called Q, which sounds like fairly, you know... Sounds pretty boring, sounds I'll be honest boring. with you. Yeah. <laughs> so the tagline is, get in a queue with your family in front of a store and experience a rush of genuine emotions! Exclamation mark. Oh my God. So you're in for a thrilling ride. The description is, the board game Koleka, aka Q, tells a story of everyday life in Poland at the tail end of the communist era. Ooh. The player's task appears to be simple. They have to send their family members out to various stores on the game board to buy all the items on their shopping list. The problem is, however, that the shelves in the five neighbourhood stores are empty. The players line up their pawns in front of the shops without knowing which shop will have a delivery. Oh, man. Tensions mount as the product delivery cards are uncovered. Whoa. Yep. And it turns out that there will be enough product cards only for the lucky few standing closest to the door of a store. Since everyone wants to be first, the queue starts to push up against the door. To get ahead, the people in the queue must use a range of queuing cards, such as, quotation marks, mother carrying small child. <laughs> and this is not your place, sir. <laughs> or under the counter goods. Ooh. But they have to watch out for... Quotation marks here. Closed for stock taking, wink, wink. Delivery error. Or for the black pawns or speculators standing in the queue. Only those players who make the best use of, use of the queuing cards in their hands will come home with full shopping bags. It's just so fascinating, right? How a particular experience is so often, you know, we've talked about how we like experience the past and like particularly a move towards more affective encounters with how we understand the past. So going to museums or going to experiences or whatever, which I am think we're going to get into in this episode. Affective as in like emotional. Affective as in like emotional. So like uh, we have moved particularly since the 1980s, although maybe there's just been more research done on it, that we have moved towards this idea of like trying to get a true sense of the past by experiencing it mm. rather than just reading it. Yeah. So that is how most, well, how a lot of people now engage with the sense of the past. Mm. And what I think is fascinating here is that this game is essentially gamifying an entire experience that played and, and like really, really affected the lives of yeah. millions of people in a seriously detrimental way and it makes light of it, right? Yeah. The game makers, by their names, are Polish. Um, When's it from? Is it from after? So it's clearly from after the Soviet period. Yeah, it's from after the Soviet period. Um, it's from 2011. Oh, wow. Um, and the main person who made it, the main designer, was someone called Karol Madaj. So, mm -hmm. you know, presumably... They are a Polish person, that's a mm. Polish name. Um, but also, I think it's really, really interesting because in the description it also says, on the product cards are photos of 60 original objects from the communist era. Mm. The merchandise includes relax shoes, like spelt like relax. Oh, okay. Przemysławka, right. Eau <laughs> de Cologne, mm. and Popularnati, as well as other commodities that were once in scarce supply. 
The neighbourhood also has an outdoor market, but the prices there are steep. Unless, of course, you manage to strike a deal with the market trader. In this realistic game, you have to be savvy to get the goods. Mm. Are you brave enough mm. to confront the everyday life of the 1980s? Wow. It's, it's my first instinct, but I'd love to know what you think, having seen the, you know, you've got the actual board and... Have you guys played it yet, actually? So um, I bowed out of playing it because... Too competitive, as I'm, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been tipping the table over, yeah. Can't, can't have me ruining Christmas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Over a game about who can cue the best. <laughs> that would be quite a story. But I, Very I, Capricorn energy. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't put it past you, to be quite honest. So, no, fair enough to bow out. Um, my instinct is, but, but please tell me what your, you know, Polish family and diasporic family made of it, is that it's satirical, right? Like, the mm -hmm. intention is not to trivialise those experiences, but, uh, well, maybe not so much satirical as, like, you know, an aid memoir of how hard things were. Yeah. And and a and a an an act against forgetting. Yeah. It, it, more than any, is that fair? Yeah, it works on so many different levels. So mm. I think in this episode I want to be really clear that it's not just about like the Polish experience. Mm -hmm. I think that we can garner so much about a kind of general concept here which is ostalgia. So yeah. or nostalgia. So like how and that's a word that kind of specifically came out of um, the kind of 90s in East East German kind of understandings of the past because overnight their world completely changed, right? And the contrast between East and West became incredibly clear during that time. So ostalgie, for people who don't know, the, the breakdown is, ost is the German word for east. Yes. Um, and it is a specific form of nostalgia. Yes. Which, do you know what the roots of the word nostalgia are in terms of like, like linguistically and therefore... I think it's nostos means home and alger means longing. Banging. A longing for home. There you go. This is cash this it, is what doing a PhD it, gets you. Cash it with the intel. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> and um, I would I would just really encourage anyone who's interested in nostalgia to read any work by Svetlana Boym. She's mm -hmm. my go-to, um, particularly because she talks about the radical potential of nostalgia. So mm. often nostalgia is misunderstood mm. as a kind of rose-tinted looking back on the past. And although there are aspects of it, yeah. that kind of flattens the potentialities of that word or that emotion or that experience, mm. right? So we can actually think about how nostalgia is both rose-tinted, but also about a kind of particular uh, love for a past, but also it's really about how, well, it's it's it can include how we use a sense of the past to demand better conditions in the present. Actually, yeah. it can be used for a radical potential. It's not just something that like can be co-opted by the far yeah, right yeah. as a way of being like, oh, everything was better then. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there are a million different directions you could take yeah. a conversation about nostalgia, aren't there? I think today we're going to concentrate on nostalgia specifically, which is unique and has unique characteristics. But you're right, like... There are so many different uses for nostalgia um, that can be weapon that could be weaponized by very anyone in you know different parts of the political spectrum for for you know more subtle goals or, or larger. Like I, you know, I spent a lot of last year writing a piece about people who fondly recall when you know bin men were um, <laughs> when bin men were hard, as the as the <laughs> sort of meme puts it, and a sort of nostalgia for when times were more difficult, which is yeah. confusing, but yeah. you know, yeah. um, but but definitely does exist. And that's one of the complicating factors of nostalgia, really, is that mm. is that, you know, people, you know, there's a it's often characterized by a fond recollection by people who experienced life under the Soviet period, including 
aspects of it that were hard that you know that were mm-hmm. times of hardship mm-hmm. and so on and um, i believe you watched goodbye lenin this week yes. um after my prodding it's so good isn't it's it? so great it's just an amazing like there were just so many parts of that film that just spoke yeah. spoke so true to me without any spoilers it broadly how can we could let's try and describe it without any spoilers so i read the i read the trailer and, yeah. and broadly um there is a kind of like t- kind of like early 20s maybe mid 20s ish mm. adult um his mum really fondly loves the lo- loves east germany she enters a coma just in the kind 88, of 89 yeah, or something so yeah she enters a coma kind of like she wakes up 8 months after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So I think it's just a few days yeah. kind of either side that she she falls into coma so she doesn't see the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm. And it's really about the speed and velocity of change during that time. Yeah. And anyway, she wakes up and because of her condition, her son tries to convince her, well, not doesn't try to convince her, tries to maintain the illusion that the wall hasn't fallen because she loved the she loved East Germany so much. And it's what what I remember, so I saw that film years ago, um, so my memory of it is slightly hazier than yours, but what I do really clearly remember that is that the, you know, the the son of the woman who's sort of in this quite fragile health state and needs to be uh, reassured that you know there haven't been any dramatic changes that communism hasn't collapsed in the period when she was unconscious. The way that that kind of uh, world is rebuilt in the post-Soviet period is largely through material objects, right? Yeah. Like he does he does he go out and try and find like a, a pickle gherkin brand yeah, yeah. that has been discontinued because you in know, eight months it's been discontinued because it, it was Russian or something and it was imported. Maybe? No, so I think it was it was German. It was a DDR. Yeah, but like, um, within brand. that eight months, so was the influx of like uh, of like capitalist objects, Western objects, Western objects yeah, yeah. that now uh, suddenly everyone's pickles yeah. come from Holland. You know, yeah, so yeah. there's these kind of like global networks as well, these European networks in terms of where our food comes from. So yeah, he spends quite a lot of time trying to find mm. the objects of mm. of his of his mum's memory. But and also, she, she's and she's delighted when she sees them, right? Yeah, because like, she's yeah. like she or she's like, oh, you've managed to, you know, because it would be inexplicable that you couldn't get hold of them if the DDR still existed, as they are pretending is the case. Yeah. But I just, I, I, the reason I mention that is I just think it's interesting that, you know, for us as material culture specialists, as we saw, so I feel mm. like you called us once in the past, <laughs> um, material culture based, that to create a world, to create an atmosphere, to create, you know, to, to conjure a particular moment in time, which is effectively what the, the lad is doing, he needs these little ostensibly really trivial things like yes. a, like a pickle jar yeah, yeah um which is i mean that speaks to the essence of cursed objects as a podcast right like that, that like you know to 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 kind of conjure a, the mood of a time that a structure of feeling mm-hmm. um as as you know the, to use the more academic phrase for it like a the atmosphere and ambiance of a, of a world you need something as mundane as a pickle jar yeah. in order to send a message about about what's in that world. Well, I, I think that film. I mean, I just want to. I just want to stress here that even if you haven't seen that film, um, it really, and I think us talking about it now really highlights some of the characteristics of Ostalgy mm. and calling. I think actually that film in and of itself represents a very particular structure of feeling. You know, that mm. way of like the old world dying and a new world emerging, and mm. the challenges within that. Because I think a lot of Ostalgy came from a sense of 
the speed and velocity of change was so quick. Yeah. And suddenly this entire right. world of the East was crumbling yeah. and had crumbled. Yeah. And what happens when your entire reality of 40 years yeah. disintegrates? Yeah. You know, how do you navigate the potentials of the new, of the new mm. and of the future while dealing with the histories of the past deeply unset it could be deeply unsettling yeah. right? I think I think one point worth spelling out for people who maybe only just encountered the idea of nostalgia in the last 15 minutes is that nostalgia is kind of in the eye of the beholder right like is you know there are different types of nostalgia depending on who you are mm. if you are in say it's the 1990s um and you live in Moscow and you are in your late 60s, you're going to have a very different attitude mm -hmm. to the rapid changes that are going on all around you, to the influx of Western goods, to the, you know, oligarchs who are rapidly destroying the country and, and you know, leading to some of the horrendous crises that we've had in uh, Eastern Europe in, you know, as recently as this year. You're going to have a very different attitude to those Soviet-era objects and memories of the Soviet time than if you're... 25 and you've only, you've only ever really experienced it as well sure it's only the only thing you've ever known but it's also you're also young and maybe have different aspirations mm. you probably you may well you know i mean i'm not going to project onto young russian people <laughs> what they what they felt in the 1990s but you're go you're obviously going to have a very different relationship with all of those objects and with the west and with the rest of the world mm. and with what you um, with what you want to see it's going to be less discombobulating mm. than it would be than if you had been born in, you know, 1945 and lived your entire life under Soviet rule, which, 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 you know, it would feel liberating to some people. It would feel devastating to others. It would probably feel a mixture to mm -hmm. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and then to me, as a British person in the West who does not have any family that lived under, um, under communism, it's fascinating. But like my personal investment is obviously completely different to yours, Cash, mm -hmm. even, even though we both grew up in London. Yeah, yeah. Right, like your relationship with this is going to be totally different. When you were saying that, there's just so many things I want to pick up on. One of them was that we often talk about the idea of like the long nineteen, like the long nineties and stuff like that. And I think it's so interesting because for a lot of people in the world, the nineties were experienced as a as a real, real like wild ride. Mm -hmm. So. I think that I think the film Goodbye Lennon really captures this, where yeah. um, a lot of people kind of talk about the 90s, especially in the former East, as being like a time of winners, winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And if you're a winner, yeah. then the influx of kind of this like crazy kind of like new capitalist model was great. And if you're a loser, it it was obviously like um, the speed and velocity of change was was actually really quite unsettling and, and confusing. But actually, I think there's something really interesting about the fact that for a lot of people, it was about how their aspirations shifted during that time. Mm. So in that film, Goodbye Lenin, his sister, Ariana, um, there's this whole big joke about how she quit studying economics, economic theory at university mm -hmm. to go and work in a Burger King. Oh my gosh. And so there's like this whole <laughs> thing that like, she was hedging her bets because she was going, well, this economic theory that I'm studying. Which presumably was Marxist. Which would have right. been Marxist yeah, in yeah, the East. Yeah. How far is that going to get me now in this yeah. new Western world? Yeah. So she quits that to go yeah. and work in a Burger King. That was like the kind of new levels of aspiration. Mm. That wasn't like the dream, but what it was is, because they kind of make fun of it, but what it was is that capitalism or the ownership of capital, the ownership of money, mm. suddenly became a really central part of the aspirations of, of people in the East. Mm. Whereas before... Not to say that money didn't matter, of course it mattered, but there were so many different um, ways in which 
security was maintained. Sure. So I think something that's really strong for me about how we understand Ostalgie is this sense of um, the safeties that were afforded by the mm. East. So often when people look back on the Eastern Bloc, they go, yeah, all right. It wasn't great. We didn't really have our freedom, but we did have homes and we did have jobs and we did have this. And I think there's something there to be problematized in the sense that, yeah, there were those things, mm. but also a lot of the jobs that you had for life were dead end jobs that weren't very fulfilling. Sure. And uh, a lot of the homes that you got also took ages for you to, you like you didn't just get a home, you're on waiting lists for ages, often having to live with parents in like blocks. You know, it wasn't that this was a land of plenty where everyone got everything. You'd have to go on long waiting lists for cars, long waiting lists for so many different things. Lots of things didn't work. Queuing, in fact. Yeah, queuing, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's not... So I think that we need to like problematise that sense of security during, during mm. the East, mm. while also kind of acknowledging that, okay, maybe if people didn't get it or if they did get it, it was a bit crap. Mm. There was still a sense that they could attain some security, mm, you know? Mm. Which so, in the Wild East of, like, to, for the rather the Wild East capitalism as opposed to, like, Wild West capitalism yeah. that you had in 1990s, particularly Russia and, and yeah. the sort of former satellite states, which, you know, Poland wasn't technically, right, uh, but was a Warsaw Pact country. There was a, it was a kind of capitalist anarchy reign yeah. supreme. And, yeah. and, you know, this is how we have the Putin we have today, arguably, as much as, as, much as, as anything else. 100%. As, you know... Um, and that, and that, that so, lack of security is yeah, yeah the alternative to that, as you say, extreme, problem, problematic sort of form of security that existed as late as the 80s. Exactly. And I, I mentioned this in our, um, in our Putin calendar episode. Mm. Putin, after he came in, uh, reduced the base rate of tax so that, so that basically oligarchs had to start paying tax. And for ordinary Russians who had been the quote unquote losers, right, mm. during the transition into Western, mm. wild mm. Western capitalism... To actually be able to have a pension meant a lot, which is why still so many of them support him. Mm, even true, even yeah. though there's like, yeah. you know, even though he's he's a war he's, criminal. He's and, not out there for them, really. Yeah, no, he's <laughs> absolutely sense, not out yeah, there for them. Yeah. But because of that time, mm. because of that memory of that like really, really wild ride that was, mm. you know, a lot of people struggling to eat or really struggling with their identities mm. and their communities. Sure. You know, this sense of loss was palpable. Mm. Like, There's a, a loss of order, a, a loss of like, and this comes back to this sort of idea of like you can be nostalgic for when times were hard. Yeah, um, is is the, the fact that like, you know, for the the many sort of many like detrimental aspects of life under particularly like late Soviet, because that would be the most recent period of of Soviet communism, so, the surety mm -hmm. of many aspects of of life was was sort of suddenly absent, and I think that's why I sort of speculated entirely and i am speculating that if you're an older uh person living in moscow rather than a younger person you'd have a very different relationship with that the suddenness of that change it's going to be a lot more jarring yeah if you're 75 and you've never known anything else and you were always in the party and yeah. you know things always happened in a certain way which sort of there's a question i wanted to throw out there which is a sort of big open question and it's one that my editor at the Guardian, who when I was writing this piece about nostalgia for proper bin men, mm -hmm. uh, he 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 kind of wrote in the margin early on in one of my early drafts. You know, I think I just probably actually wrote put this literally into the final article as well. It was <laughs> such a good question. Stole it from Jonathan Shaden. It was, what is the yearning for proper bin men really a yearning for? Yeah. So like you know, no no one is actually desperately 
like one they're not no. literally missing these proper bin men they're missing something else are they missing their youth mm. yes probably everyone does mm. <laughs> <laughs> are they you know or, or let's but let's let's situate this in in nostalgia in the east yeah. right you know if, if people are nostalgic for a particular pickle brand you could only get in 1980s mm. sort of soviet bloc countries are they missing the pickle brand in a really trivial way they just really like those pickles those pickles mm-hmm. tasted better they mm-hmm. genuinely taste better is it they're missing their youth? Is it they're missing the security and surety of, of a particular of you know life under what was you know broadly totalitarian kind of um, leadership? You know, there's possibly all of those three things. Mm. Like you know, it, is it, it can, the communities, is the it, communities yeah. of resistance, but yeah. also the communities that even if they were like forged under the like banner of communist party act, act like mm. activities sure, also included like going out with like school kids and singing songs if you're a pioneer yeah. i mean the kid in goodbye lenin loved being a pioneer right i think didn't yeah. he like from what i can remember and those you know those aspects of you know obviously it should go without saying but you could be an adult in like modern day east germany or modern day poland modern day russia and have a memory of being a young pioneer that you've really fondly recall while also resenting yeah. everything else about the regime yeah. and being an arch critic of it. Like mm. these things can exist, coexist. They're not paradoxical. Like mm. they make, it makes sense. You know, I detest many things about living in Britain in 2022, but mm. I'm also very grateful. I'm, you know, that I'm not living in various other parts of the world or periods in history. Mm-hmm. I don't have the plague as far as I know. Um, I mean, I hope not because we're recording IRL. So if I have, then Cash has got it as well now. Um, I just, when I was, when you were just talking there, I was really struck by the idea of like the different experiences of nostalgia because obviously what we might think of like the the Soviet bloc, right, mm. spans so many different what we now see as nations. And it's cultures within those cultures nations. Cultures within yeah. those nations. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I thought, I just found it really interesting because my family, they weren't political exiles, but they weren't, because of the experiences of my like grandparents during the war and stuff, they were on a blacklist. So you mm. could never, they could never join the communist party. Not that they would want to, but they couldn't yeah. anyway, because they were, right. they were already They're seen as, out- they were already outcasts, yeah, right? Yeah. So that meant, meant that like uh, my auntie couldn't train to be a psychologist. Like she'd always wanted to be, she couldn't train to be a teacher. Like mm. she like, you know, all of these things were opportunities that had been snatched away purely because of who her parents were, right? Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because in very different cases, right, we can see that the nostalgia, the nostalgia for like particular products or ways of being and doing and life, mm. right? You know, the experiences of your youth or whatever, there was still the awareness that there were the um, social outcasts or there was, you know, mm. that it was a system under under a repressive regime, yeah, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Free, that freedoms were particular freedoms were limited. So I think this idea of freedoms or like freedom... So I think that in the East, they had a kind of freedom from want because Mm. they had things that they could get, right? Limited supplies of these things. But you knew that you could go to a milk bar, which is like a kind of cheap uh, canteen to get food, or you could... Yeah, okay, your options were limited and maybe the coffee was made out of acorns. You know, it was like ersatz coffee or whatever rather than real coffee. And that the tea was nationalised and it tasted like shit. It was rubbish. Mm. You know, but there was a a particular freedom from desperate want, right? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But at the same time they didn't have the freedom from the repressive regime. So it was kind of like, I think how we understand the idea of like freedoms within nostalgia and the different ways that freedom is expressed is really Mm. interesting. And I know that Leah Upi, 
Yep. Um, she's written about this. I in think, her book, in, Free. In her book, Free, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's something really interesting there because that has also been criticised as by being too um, positive, I guess, too nostalgic of the kind of... Sometimes by people who have not lived under Albanian yeah. uh, communism, which she did, which is which is interesting. Um, yeah. But then sometimes also by Albanians who have, or, yeah, or, yeah. or Albanians born in the aftermath who yeah. have kind of gone, hang on a second, you know? I think a lot of it can come down to perspectives in terms of like your needs at that time as well. So mm. we can never really forget the individualised and like highly, highly specific positionality of yeah. anyone who is writing about the past through their eyes. Right? Everyone's experience, everyone experiences every regime differently, right? Exactly. And so, which is why, why I was a bit hesitant before to make some wild generalisations about what a 70-year-old in Moscow does. Yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, with all the caveats, that's highly speculative. All I wanted to say was that exactly that. People have very, we're going to have very different responses. When we talk about historical memory, which is something Kasia and I are both fascinated by, and one of us, not me, has a PhD in, um, <laughs> then we're talking about, like, Something that can never be completely, like, can never be generalised, absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. there is no one historical memory, you know, when I'm I'm fascinated by, you know, how the people of modern-day Spain remember the Francoist period, for mm -hmm. example. They don't remember it the same way. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the, like, top line. After that, caveat, you can get into some detail. But obviously, there's, there's going to be quite a lot of varia variation there. But um, can I just say, yeah. I'm so fascinated by that. Um, I've always been really interested in the kind of individual versus collective memories mm. of particular histories. So I think that, like, while everyone's experience is individual, these really strong narratives also exist. Maybe they're bound by the nation or maybe there are specific aspects of it um, across the former East. Mm. So I was really trying to think about what is... Nostalgia, and I did some reading about various things, mm. and and like what makes it different from nostalgia in mm. a sense. And yeah. I think, you know, are we thinking about it spatially, or are we thinking about it explicitly politically, or is it about a longing for a particular past, mm. or is it none of these? Is it actually about a state of mind in the present where you are looking back at a past, whatever that may be, and you kind of you see aspects that are constantly underpinned by attention mm. the tension being of it being a great time and also being a terrible it was the best of times <laughs> it was the worst of times wow i can't believe you just invented such a profound set know, of phrase off the, off the top of your I head um, but no it's a, i mean i think all historical memory is conditioned by the particular period in which you are remembering it mm. right so the way that no, I'm gonna to have to use some fictional examples again. The way modern, the way like people in Moscow in 2023 remember the Soviet period or think about the Soviet period if they didn't experience it firsthand, as fewer and fewer people alive, you know, have done, will be different to how it was remembered and viewed in 2001, mm -hmm. when Putin was a very different animal, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. when Russia was in a very different state, yeah. in all sorts of ways that are far too complicated to go into right now. Mm. Um, and that will be very different from how it was remembered in 1992 when, or one, when there were tanks on the streets and stuff, you know, mm. and there would have been a, some very, like, mixed emotions, I'm sure. Mm. Um, that proximity and the lack of, and, you know, the further we get away from it, the more it's going to bend and twist mm. into, into particular new directions, which is why the shaping of that history is really important. And the shaping of history through uh, films, through art, through literature... Uh, through books like Leah, 
Leah's um, um, about the Albanian sort of Albanian experience, but also through museums, um, through immersive experiences. I mean, Kasia, your uh, your PhD was about sort of the immersive experience, the Blitz experience, mm -hmm. and the and the Second World War galleries at, at the Imperial War Museum in London for exactly that reason, right? Like the the, the, the like over time the way that those stories are told has to, has changed. Yes, absolutely. For a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question about Polish ostalgy specifically? Yeah. Which is that when you go back to Poland, or even if you're just hanging out in the Polish diaspora in London, mm. um, what form does, like how much of it is there in Poland, mm. a country that I would hazard a guess was broadly quite anti-communist, um, mm. you know, given the scale of resistance in the 1980s and mm -hmm. and so on to, to rule from Moscow. What does it look like? Do you see, like, physically, what material objects are there? Do you see, like, communist-era badges and T-shirts and stuff for sale in markets? Do you... No. Would, would, <laughs> right, you don't. No. Because you do see that in Germany. You yeah, see that in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, I can speak about Budapest and I can speak about, like, Hungary... And Bulgaria and Lithuania are countries where I've sort of explored a little bit of this sort of stuff, but in Poland, just nothing. No, no. Would people be? What would happen if, like, someone would someone be like sort of chased out of the market? If well, if, if I had have gone and seen my granny wearing a communist hat, she would have had a heart attack. Yeah. Like it was the scale of the repression and the feeling of hatred. Mm. I don't know. Maybe this is maybe this is just my family <laughs> because of our experiences yeah, but yeah, you know I, I would say more broadly more generally there is no like cosplaying in a communist aesthetic right okay no so way there's no... not really yeah interesting not in my experience but there is a really excellent art historian Marta, Marta Sporalska mm -hmm. and she does so much on like art history around this and and I don't know whether the communist aesthetic is something that she's found particularly, but I think mm. the idea of the communities and ideas of like want mm. um, are there is a nostalgia about that. Yeah. So specifically, I wrote an article about Polish herbal tea, yeah. and there is a strong theme of like how people are reclaiming and using her like herbs have always been part of Polish folklore, but mm. the way that some of these herbs are used is almost like as a bulwark against modern time <laughs> yeah yeah so it's really interesting like in poland yeah the concept of nostalgia is really quite complex and, the, and nuanced because it's about the the things that that provided but definitely not about not the objects. regime there aren't and there aren't or like there's the insignia the sort of the visual kind of markers of, of communist rule do you know so, what, so like so like not so like Nazi insignia, for example, in Germany is 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 banned. Basically, yeah. like mm. it's not you know you can't you can't sell memorabilia from the Nazi period. I'm pretty sure it's illegal. It's mm -hmm. one of the many things that was established in the post-war kind of uh, new German constitution that mm. sort of out, out, outlawed um, you know that had very very like strident kind of rule, laws around historical memory mm -hmm. essentially. Part of that was like trade in Nazi memorabilia was off the table, and yet kind of communi communist stuff. I mean, they're not the same thing. This is a this is a whole I other subject, is, but like is, I guess um, this is the difference, isn't it, between the aesthetics of nostalgia mm, and the the regimes underpinning those times. The more structural so, stuff, the macro so yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really interesting that like you know I would never wear a communist T-shirt to go and see my granny. Yeah, but actually because of the way that history and time work. Mm. There were companies that were set up 
during that period that mm. like you know if you go to like a shop and it says in in the in britain it says established in 1837 or yeah, whatever yeah. you're like wow that's it that's a good that's good quality it's a historical shop you know it's got it's got historical precedents <laughs> right boasting, yeah. yeah they're boasting <laughs> but they also kind of you see this you see this when you go to new york and they're like and there's macy's and you're like oh of course because it's one of the like oldest so, macy's. so funny no, it's like you this know? is the oldest house in yeah. all of boston yeah. you're like oh yeah that's yeah. yeah my my house is my literally my house is older than that yeah 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 yeah. but like you know and it's and i think that say if there are like companies or brands that were established in poland Mm. um during like the communist period or like came to be formulated people would associate them with good quality in the same Uh, way that you would with anything that's historical but they weren't because like khrushchev hadn't set it up himself like it's, well, yeah. it's it's okay. Like it doesn't, or it doesn't have Stalin's face on it. Well, yeah, obviously, yeah. That, I think that, that that wouldn't go down so well. I think it's still. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about the idea of aesthetics as part of this nostalgia because often it seems to be like a representation mm. of a past that is really dependent on the look and feel of material things. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, rather rather than being about. Um, it's it's kind of in the ta- it's in the tangible things like that film Goodbye Lenin really shows right it's mm. in the glass jars of pickles mm. or like honey or whatever in particular brands it's in the look and feel of the cheap MDF wardrobes mm. that they get rid of you know there is a kind of embedded sense of time within the objects of that era right which I think is how we often access it an aesthetic fetishism of, yeah. of, of a period which you know like. The way that fashion and style works yeah. is that is that it's broadly cyclical, or at the mm-hmm. very least, there are periods of um, of fashion history that come in and out of yeah. style again. You know, if you'd worn flares fifteen years ago, you'd have been a bloody weirdo. But if you did it in either nineteen seventy or now five, nineteen ninety five, when I was like you know thirteen, they were cool again, mm-hmm. or indeed now that you know then mm-hmm. that's fine. And um, so in that respect, I could see how. If you were a young German person now living in, you know, obviously long since post-communist Berlin, some aspects of the aesthetics could be appealing because they're because the eighties are in or whatever. Yeah. You yeah. Know, um, I'm not. I'm not sure how much that is actually the case in modern-day Berlin. Like, but can I just say yeah. because I was. I've recently followed the Sainsbury's archive on Instagram. One of my faves. And it's amazing because all of the stuff is like, it looks super retro. It's like, here's some Brussels sprout packaging from like, I don't know, the 60s. And I love the aesthetic. The There's aesthetic's some amazing. Sick cornflake packet designs yeah, from the 1960s. Yeah. But that, yeah, yeah. that doesn't. I wouldn't wear it on a t shirt. But I don't think, I, I, I don't know whether that would be interrogated in the same way, me being like, oh, that's some really cool yeah. Brussels sprouts. There's Does that like, that means you love the post-war social democratic consensus? Yeah, yeah. That's why. <laughs> well, I mean, I do. But... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but that's but, it... <laughs> but that's it. That's it, right? No one's gonna say, "Oh, she really likes yeah, this packaging yeah. because she was really into like Keynesian thought or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> that would be really, really a really funny kind of like yeah corollary to like draw out of that. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, I, I guess if we're saying why is nostalgia, what is unique to nostalgia? Why is it not like normal nostalgia? Well because the Soviet Union was not like a normal regime is yeah. the short answer yeah. to that question. Um, that's why it has its own word, you know? Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. It wouldn't have its own word if it wasn't for the fact this is a remarkable, unique uh, relationship with a period that was, you know, where governance and everyday life was quite different mm. uh, to how it was in, uh, in capitalist Western Europe and indeed in modern day all of Europe, mm-hmm. um, for better and for worse. I had an interesting kind of lesson in 
some of the complexities of nostalgia when I went to Vilnius in Lithuania mm -hmm. about nine years ago now for an article that I wrote for The Guardian about Lithuanian nostalgia, well, nostalgia really. A lot of it isn't really nostalgia in that it's not a fond recollection. Mm. Uh, it's more like your board game, essentially. Mm. It's more like using, we are conjuring up the material objects and the experience, the affective experiences and emotions of a particular period in time in order to warn people today of what was wrong with it, mm. you know, like as part of, um, yeah, an educational process, like mm. a series and the idea that education and commemoration and the discussion of history shouldn't just happen in books, mm -hmm. like you were saying about the board game, right? And much like the uh, Blitz experience in the in the World War II galleries, of um, of the Imperial War Museum, which your which your PhD was about, I basically went to the sort of Lithuanian post-communist version of that, which was something called "1984 Survival Drama in a Soviet Bunker," uh, and it's like <laughs> a three-hour immersive experience in a former nuclear bunker um, on the outskirts of Vilnius. You have to drive out to it. Um, I figured this was worth going all the way to Lithuania for. Yes. I had a lovely time. Yes. Vilnius is delightful. Um, <laughs> full of ama amazing Soviet-era architecture. I mean, that's an aspect of nostalgia we should discuss. Cause, Absolutely. Because everyone basically seems to love, you know, Soviet bus stops. And, mm. you know, uh, there's a huge doorstop of a coffee table book, CCTP. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like... And books on brutalism in general, you know, sure. that kind of brutal concrete aesthetic. Yeah. So many, like... There must be thousands of like photographic like yeah. kitchen table books. About I that. mean, the barber can sell tea towels with that stuff on. Oh well, like, exactly. It's, just, it's yeah. gone. It's gone so far. God, I'm just realizing. Obviously, we have to do a like eye roll kind of brutalist tea roll <laughs> tea towel episode at some point. Yeah, uh, I can think of a million people who'd be good guests for that. Anyway, um, but yeah, sorry to come back to the Soviet drama, Soviet survival drama in a Soviet bunker experience. So you're taken out to this this bunker. And the idea is that it's terrifying, right? Mm. Like the way that the the woman that established it, who was from the world of theatre, not from the world of museums originally, I interviewed her for the piece. She said a number of people have fainted. Like right. we've had up to five people fainting in one in one experience. And there's only like 30 of you. Right. I think she was saying this. I think that sounds like a lie to me. I'm going to say that now. <laughs> um, five people fainted, really. But it was pretty It was pretty full mm. on. Like, mm. you've got um, extremely burly guys working as, like, Soviet guards with huge Alsatians. Real Alsatians, not theatrical Alsatians. Like, actual dogs that are massive and quite scary and uh, drooling and um you know they shout at you a lot <laughs> and yeah. sort of you are the you the idea is that you've been imprisoned in the soviet period and you are interrogated at random you know the the way that like quote-unquote justice is meted out is really arbitrary which is you know Mm. kind of key point usually in the critique of like how uh sort of law and order and power was exercised in across many soviet nations was that it would you know that you would all live in fear, essentially, because you never knew who was going to be hauled out and thrown into the gulag or, mm. or sent into the gulag. Um, so it was a it was a strange experience. I think some people maybe would have thought it was trivialising. What was interesting to me was that the overwhelming majority of people that were in my group mm. on this in this theatrical experience about the Soviet period, they were all young Lithuanians. They were all like twenty oh, something, okay. maybe thirty something. Didn't have any memory of it. I'm sure I spoke to at least one person for the article who was an older Lithuanian woman who was like, 
I w- I don't need to go through this. I was there. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I don't I don't need reminding. Frank, mm. thank you very much. But I do think that it's it's okay, certainly okay. I don't think she was she was su- super supportive of this woman I spoke to. I do think that it is defensible basically yes. to have something like this. It's not it's not like, you know, making an Anne Frank escape room or something like, yeah. you know, we've alluded to in the past, that sort of demeaning mm. approach to very serious periods of history. So, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. But so because yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm really curious about this, because this was one of my questions. Does nostalgia, do you have to be from that time and mm. have remembered it in that way to experience it? Um, because I was also thinking about the question of, is there nostalgia in the West? Or from Western mm. nations, because you know films like um, I don't know if you saw Atomic Blonde. Um, it kind of plays; it's like a spy Cold War thing that oh, plays yeah. in the aesthetics of Berlin during the nineteen eighties. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to yeah. say, but there's loads of other kind of examples like Deutschland. Deutschland eighty three, I think, yeah. it's German, but it yeah. had huge success over here. Mm-hmm. You know, there is this sense that a lot of people in Western countries, although even calling them Western nations now when there isn't that dichotomy is, you know, there's there's so much we could say about the curseness of yeah. that of that description in yeah. and of itself. Um, but, you know, I kind of wonder whether, one, you have to have lived through the Soviet period to experience it, mm. and two, whether what the benefits might be or whether you can experience it from a Western perspective. And I wonder if you can experience it from a Western perspective, but it's much more focused on aesthetics and I kind of think you know that kind of idea of like oh the music was really cool and it was like you know it's kind of like set in like I don't know like East German clubs that like super industrial (laughs) um it kind of got me thinking does does a western investment in that in that kind of not just aesthetic but idea what Mm. what role is it performing what role is it performing in terms of collective memory? In terms of like, is it is it a warning against communism? Does it limit our imagination of like what the potentials of that of that experience mm. were, or what the drawbacks were? Even does it flatten yeah. the experience yeah. of what life was like then, and kind of go, hey, you know, all of those like complex emotions that came with living under the Soviet period. Actually, it was Nena singing 99 Love Balloons and uh, <laughs> clubs that no one yeah. went to, but will pretend that they did because it suits the the character of the film or whatever. Do you see what I'm trying to get? At? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you know we like we've all sort of seen like a, a random kind of 1980s or 70s soviet or russian like disco tune and music video yeah and been like that is so bloody cool and yeah. like and it's a great tune i mean i think the honest truth if we are we are going to generalize a little bit here is that yeah most western kind of nostalgia is obviously it's not a remembering because no one there no one was living mm-hmm. you know most, most of the people we're talking about are people like you and me who are like young enough and western enough that we didn't live under soviet under communist regimes um that those are generally you know examples of aesthetic fetishism that really have no relationship with the political cultures involved Mm. let alone marxist leninism Mm. at all i Mm. think you know i mean i am generalizing here some people are maybe i'm sure interested and you know there is a peculiar very sort of 2020s subculture on Twitter of people who have sort of put the hammer and sickle in their Twitter Mm. bios. But that's a weird and quite small niche (laughs) uh, subculture, Mm. I think. And it is a subculture. It's Mm. it's just a, it's just an online subculture. Those people may well be reading Das Kapital um, Mm. and interested in 
fending off some of the criticisms of Soviet communism while also enjoying the aesthetics. I think for the most part, you could compare Western, young Western modern interest in that period with steampunk or rockabilly. You know, mm. it's it's a particular moment in time that you didn't live through that is probably has become aestheticized and has probably become quite distorted from what it was originally anyway. Mm. People who are into steampunk are harking back to when? Late 19th century? Mm-hmm. Early 20th? Sort of fin de siècle. Ah, de siècle. I can never say that. Yeah, I'm welcome so... to Duolingo yeah, with Dan I, and Kasia. I can never um, say that phrase <laughs> either. Fin end of the century, <laughs> turn of the century. But that's not how people dressed mm. in 1900 mm. uh, or 1901, is it? Uh, it is a... It's a sort of peculiar bastardised version of a like series around the world of, in 80 days. right of Jules yeah. Verne like <laughs> novels, and yeah. like it's developed over time. It's been sort of turned into a kind of weird fashion thing. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. I mean, I think it's uncool, but that's my subjective opinion. Mm. But I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with you know that slightly odd bastardisation of a of a bygone historical period and moment for fashion reasons. Mm. I could see why some people might object to the aestheticization of the Soviet period uh, if they had experienced it. You know, your gran. Yeah. yeah. If you turned up wearing uh, your sort of your you know communist hat or whatever yeah. or your Lenin T-shirt. Yeah. And she objected. I don't think you would get very far by saying no. It's just fashion. Don't worry. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard when like you know both of my grandfathers got sent to the gulag. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's not an it's argument like, you're winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think also this is also interesting because when we think about nostalgia, what period of time are we nostalgic for? Yeah. You know, which bit of which bit of yeah. that 40 yeah, years yeah, yeah, yeah. are we going, oh, I really wish that we could have Stalin's purges back. Like that's not really where the nostalgia is. It's not really rooted in that like 45 to like 50, 53 kind of, time period you know it's often rooted in like later time periods like surrounding technological change and stuff like that that i think people think back to yeah i mean it's 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 largely sort of 70s and 80s stuff Mm -hmm. that gets aestheticized i think Mm -hmm. no one no one wants to no one's like oh i'd really love to wear a big scratchy you know horsehair jacket or something like those aren't the bits yeah the 1920s aren't being aestheticized Mm. um in the same way at all it's Soviet film posters mm. or, um, you know, stuff around Laika the dog that went to the mood and stuff exactly, like that. You know, yeah. like some of the some of the sort of future. I say that, I mean, there is, you know, I, I do know people that are very interested in, I mean, I'm very interested in the sort of, some of the futurism and, and sort of avant-garde culture of the very, very early Soviet period of the mm. late teens and early 20s before Stalin flattened it all because mm. he was a Philistine. Mm. That doesn't mean I think that everything happened that happened between 1917 and Stalin's rise to power in 1928 was good. Mm. Obviously, I've studied that period extensively. It fucking mm. sucks in all sorts mm. of ways. It is far too complicated to start talking about now. But you know, there are there are aspects of the culture and aesthetics um, of that period that are remarkable, and like mm. it would be absurd and philistine in its own way if we in 2023 said, well, because, you know, many people died under war communism uh, 1918 to 21, 
uh, we shouldn't like enjoy the early avant-garde works of Shostakovich or Malevich yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Like, are, you know, are you mad? Like that, that is like mm. you'd be missing out on some of the most remarkable art ever created. Um, that's kind of, not nostalgia. That's just art history. But I, kind of, <laughs> but I kind of wonder, just as she was saying that, I was like, but I wonder if there is a yearning, like a latent yearning for a different way of being mm-hmm. that has been, because our brains are so like dominated by neoliberalism, by capitalist thought, but like, you know, a very specific type of capitalist mm. thought, right? Neoliberalism. So I kind of wonder sometimes when I engage with that kind of Soviet era artwork or music or even films whether I'm also kind of yearning despite not having lived through it yearning for a different way of thinking about the world just yearning for a different way of breaking Mm. free from this you know the crushing thing that is from capitalist realism yeah Yeah. from capitalist realism (laughs) you are an atom you're on your own you've got your family and you've got your friends but you know even they can cut from you really all you've got is yourself and if you're sad that's your fault and you know all of this stuff that's piled onto us think of your hustle think of your grind all of this Mm. kind of stuff actually i wonder whether engaging in that artwork is just and i I don't want it i don't want to make it sound like it's like a warm bath i don't want it to sound like it's like Mm. an escape i wonder if it's a way of just allowing us providing some building blocks for allowing us to think slightly differently to imagine that there is an alternative yeah i mean i would even if that alternative wasn't perfect sure Um, or and even if you're not telling the story of how of what that alternative was like honestly like so Mm. so i think there's sort of modern day very usually i think seemingly very young people online that are putting hammer and sickle hammer and sickle emojis or icons or whatever in their twitter bios and are slightly fetishize well definitely fetishizing but slightly cosplaying in sort of the idea that the soviet period was was perfect the unsympathetic response to that is you're trivializing you mm. know the crimes of the 1930s and 40s uh this is disgraceful the i think the sympathetic view is that yeah like life under late capitalism sucks and you want to imagine that there's another way yeah exactly as you say yeah. but that and which comes back to i think the critical question the one i stole from my my editor um you know what is the what is the yearning for a particular period in the past really a yearning for yeah is it for the aesthetics mm. is it for you know forgotten times or is it a reflection of the fact that you're unhappy in the present mm. uh and and as you say the specific conditions of neoliberalism which are that you know with the fall of the Berlin Wall that the idea that there was another way Mm. of running society and the economy uh falls with it I think that's why a lot of nostalgia kind of appeared in that um 90s period because of this kind of speed and velocity of change that I've kind of mentioned and um I was reading a work by Jeffrey Ollick in preparation for this and he's talking about different people's responses to the idea of collective memory and Eric Eric Hobsbawne fave love him describes the rise and i'm just going to quote here describes the rise of linear historical consciousness as a necessary solution to the existential problems of rapid transformation and i quote paradoxically the past remains the most useful analytical tool for coping with constant change Hmm. and i just think there's Hmm. something really interesting in that quote about the idea that like when things are constantly changing as i think 
it feels like that now, mm. right? So yeah, the 90s were a time of rapid change. The 80s are a time of rapid change. But now is such a time of rapid change. And I think that a harking back and looking back or using particular useful pasts is really central to, you know, to understanding, to understanding, I guess, the phenomenon of the aestheticization of, of, of these histories. A hundred percent. God, I... That is such a like profound quote to me because of the very specific and recent experience I had during the pandemic, mm. a period of unbelievable, unprecedented newness mm. uh, in the worst way for so many of us. I found myself reading history books yeah. almost exclusively to, to the point that I was suddenly like, wait, why am I doing this? You know, when you suddenly step back from your own life and choices and you're like, Wow, this is weird. Why? What? What's going on here? Like, mm. you know, it was just an instinctive thing. It makes perfect sense. Mm. It makes absolutely perfect sense. You know, in a time of un massive uncertainty and a lot of anxiety, you know, generalized anxiety that everyone across the bloody world is feeling. What better thing to do than to escape into the past, mm. into a time, into and and as a reminder, apart from anything else, that like confusing, bewildering rapid mm. change has happened before people got through it and that we would do the same you know yeah I love it when you read history books because it means you tell me about them and then I don't have to read them <laughs> but then I tell people like about these really interesting history books. You need to... <laughs> and they're like she's very smart <laughs> I'm sorry you are you are gonna the one that I was really particularly fixated on was uh to the Finland station by Edmund Wilson which I'd, I sort of read at uni and I think I'd appreciated much more the second time mm. around basically not least because I wasn't sort of panicking about an essay while I was reading it but yeah honestly go go deep into like 19th century French socialist theory the 19th century a period of, of en an endless sort of flux and change mm. and possibilities and you know forestalled possibilities uh, it really was genuinely soothing you, you said like, oh, you know, you were sort of querying the idea it was calming. It was calming. I love that. Um, which is odd because you're reading about revolutions. And yeah. <laughs> upheavals and <laughs> wars and sieges and horrible things, actually. But like it's soothing because you realise that, you know, actually, you know, I've got the heating on, my feet are up, the cats are there. I didn't, you know, I don't have COVID at that particular moment. It's fine. <laughs> what a way to end it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with that call to reading more history books and telling me about them so I don't have to read them, but I sound smart. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on, uh, on this episode of Cursed Objects. It's been great. It has been great. Thank you so much, uh, Cash. We're going to have to play that board game at some point soon. Oh, my God. I'm living in fear of playing a board game against you because I don't know what you're capable of. Um, <laughs> Dear Cursed Objects listeners, do check out our Patreon. In fact, uh, very specifically, there was a, something that Kasia referred to earlier, her marvellous work on herbal teas and Polish herbal teas and what that says about memory. Um, there's a whole uh, dedicated episode about that on the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Cursed Objects. And you get stickers as well. The stickers are so great. They are very cool. be foisting these stickers on you whether you want them or not. <laughs> Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Love you. Bye.